Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton of One Nation Whiskey. What? Say that again? All right, I will. This is Joshua Hatton of One Nation Under Whiskey, and I am joined today, and I am joined, as always, by my good friend, my business partner, the man with the master plan, Mr. Jason Johnston Yellen. Welcome back to our podcast again. You can tell we're two more weeks into the summer holidays with our kids. Yeah? We're, yeah, we're, we're sounding a little bit more browbeaten <laughs> than we did two weeks ago. Uh, and then two weeks before that, we almost sounded optimistic. Like, this will be, be the summer. This will be the one. Yeah. This, they're getting older. This will be easier. And uh, here we are, the end of July, only three more weeks to go. Mm. We can we can do this, yeah. but yeah, we are we're, we're getting a little tired. Yeah, you a know, little frayed around the edges. You know, the thing is, I've got my two daughters, just like you've got your two sons at home, and and mm-hmm. our kids aren't at camps. They're home. Mm-hmm. None and, of our four have yeah. been doing camps, <laughs> and so our kids are instructed to. Go outside, go to your friend's house, go (laughs) into the swimming pool, do whatever. And if you don't do that, it's okay to be bored. I was bored when I was Mm. a kid and I figured out stuff. I figured out how to do stuff. But what they don't realize... Figured out how to roll a joint and it changed your life. (laughs) Uh, We we call them... um, Oh, yeah, we call them joints. Never mind. Uh, (laughs) And, uh, <laughs> Trying to pretend you were cooler than you were. We called them uh, uh, anything I say now is going to sound really stupid. We, yep, yep, yep. yep Confirm. Yep. We the, called them the joints. joints. Yep. Um, yep. <laughs> but what these kids don't realize is even though they're oh. on vacation, uh, we are <laughs> <Yes>. not. <laughs> yes. I, I have a hard time with that every day with my kids mm. where it's kind of like, yep, get your chores done, then move on to your fun activities. Just leave me in my office to do my stuff. And invariably the nine-year-old at some point in the morning, dad, can you play a game? <laughs> nope. I got yep. emails to send. <laughs> dad, can you come outside and throw the football with us? Uh, we're looking at tracking numbers right now. <laughs> Can I do some tracking numbers? <laughs> um, not today. Yeah. These these have got to go out in a bit of a hurry. So, you, yeah. You know what I would suggest to you? And I've, start, um, I've yeah. send them down the mines. Close. I mean, in, in, in blood diamonds. <laughs> I had suggested this to my kids. They oh. come in. And they ask, you know, Dad, can you can you help me bake something? Mm-hmm. Uh, can you come outside and help me do this? And I tell them, why don't you go back to where you came from? <laughs> <laughs> and it seems it's it seems to work. I mean, normally if you don't like it in this house. Yeah, if you don't like it in this house, go, you're going to complain about being bored to me in this house. Yes, yeah, go back to where Just you came from. Go back to. Do they say, Dad, we were born in this house? Yeah, but that, it seems nonsensical. They don't, you know, they don't look like me, exactly. So I don't think that, you know, go back. (laughs) I almost made you spit. I almost made you spit. So 
So speaking about going back to where you came from, you were just in Israel. I was. <laughs> and it's and it's and it's it's so funny that you mentioned this because just today, and I'm gonna get serious here for a second. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you and I hint just ever so slightly to the fact that, you know, we're sort of liberal minded people, right? Oh, right. Uh, okay. So cat's out the bag now. Right. right. So we, we, we mention that occasionally. But I'll tell you, when a certain person in power basically told four congresswomen to go back to where you came from, it reminded me of being an eight, nine, ten-year-old kid and local neighborhood kids telling me, uh, go back to Israel, you Jew kike. Right. Yeah. And uh, right. And so you know what I did? If I had gone then, the terrorists would have won. I waited 35 years to go back to Israel. Uh, and <laughs> You played the long game. I played did these the, young played children the know game. that you were in this for the long game? <laughs> so, fuck them. That's what I say. I went to there Israel. It sounds like a hashtag. <laughs> hashtag, fuck them. Uh, yeah, so so I did. I went to Israel, and uh, <laughs> I'm trying to turn the ship around here because... Well, more specifically, you went to Tel Aviv. I went to Tel Aviv. You, you described it to me as even more liberal than you would have imagined. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, um, Tel Aviv is a... I almost said a Mecca, um, but it, it is it is it is home to some of the most liberal-minded people that I've ever met. It is the vegan capital of the world, right? And you know, just to give you an idea, during during Pride Month mm-hmm. when they Out had when they had their Pride Festival. Guess how many people marched in the streets of Tel Aviv during Pride Month? No idea. 250,000. There you go. That's a number. That's a big number. And if you think, you know, comparatively speaking to the rest of the Middle East, that's about 250,000 more people than the rest of the Middle East. uh, Combined. Combined. Uh, Yeah, having said that, uh, Beirut. Had a, had their own Pride Festival as well. Beirut is very much a progressive city within Lebanon, but yeah, it's it's you know you go to Tel Aviv, and it is it's just amazing. Um, yeah, you certainly waxed lyrical about it in a way that I, you know, obviously I regretted being unable to go with you, but mm-hmm. it was during a period where I'd committed to not traveling. It was coincided, fully enough, what we were talking about earlier, the beginning of the summer holidays. Oh, right. <laughs> and having kids off school. So, yes, I had I had made one commitment to my wife that meant I could not make another commitment to Tel Aviv. Well, there's always next year. And that's, that's what I told myself. <laughs> next year in Tel Aviv. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh... But yeah, you know, it's I, I didn't know what to expect because when you think of Israel, or when many people think of Israel, you first think of Jerusalem, which mm-hmm. which is a much more conservative 
city and kind of understandably so the people that that go there the people that live there are very very religious uh, whether they're Jewish, whether they're Muslim, whether they're Christian, whether they're Armenian, um, you know, they tend to be a bit more conservative than than the folk in, in Tel Aviv. And I loved both cities. I got to visit both cities. I also got to visit, uh, and you'll hear it in the interview as well, I, I think, uh, I got to go to the Dead Sea with uh, with Tal, with uh, Tomer, and with Aitin. Now, these are people from the Milk and Honey Distillery. And in this in this interview, you will be you'll hear that I'm having a conversation with Tomer, who is basically the master distiller and master blender for Milk and Honey Distillery. Tal, who is the he's basically the guy who manages the export markets for Milk and Honey. And then, mm-hmm. and then Aten is the CEO of of Milk and Honey. And uh, okay, and yeah. and all three chaps are part of the one conversation. Uh, Aten never makes it into the conversation. He had some other okay. things going on. It was just me, Tal, and Tomer. Nice. So do me a favor then. Go ahead. Since I sadly wasn't there, and and neither were our listeners, set the scene for us as we're prone to do in our in our episodes here. Where is the distillery, and then where were you interviewing within the distillery? Ah, okay, perfect. So, <clears throat> the city of Tel Aviv used to be its own city. There was just Tel Aviv, but as many cities do, it kind of grows. It kind of um, spreads out. And so the city itself was founded, I think it was 1909. And between 1909 and today, it's grown so much that it's actually taken over Jaffa. So mm. you, just like in New York, right, you've got Manhattan, you've got Brooklyn, you've got the Yon- Yonkers, you've got the Bronx, etc. In Tel Aviv, you have Tel Aviv Yafo, which is the city of Tel Aviv, and then you have Tel Aviv Jaffa. And Milk and Honey is in Jaffa, which is a old, much older city. It's one of the oldest cities in in Israel. Uh, am I right in saying Jaffa is very well known for their cakes? <laughs> Hashtag dad joke. <laughs> well, there's a reason Jaffa cakes are called Jaffa cakes. I mean... Jaffa is known for its um, oranges, for its orange harvest. There you go. And it's Jaffa, always a connection. There you go. Jaffa cakes. For those <laughs> people that don't know it, Jaffa cakes are soft, sponge-like, sponge-like biscuits with an orange jelly or gel covered mm-hmm. in chocolate. Mm-hmm. Cookies for the American listeners. All right. This, is that what we call them? Cookies? We don't call them biscuits? Well, they're not biscuits. They're not biscuits in the style you would imagine a biscuit with chicken gravy over it. I guess you could put chicken gravy over a Jaffa cake. I don't think it'll taste so good. <laughs> if you can imagine it, people have done it. So. Uh huh. Um, <clears throat> so, Rule 34A of the internet. <laughs> so, Milk and Honey Distillery is actually located in the Jaffa section. Of Tel Aviv and ah okay, yeah. okay. There's a revelation. Yep. Okay. and it is basically under the shadow of their their big football stadium. And by football, I mean soccer. 
Uh, yep, not, a lot of translation yep, going on yep, in this portion not of the American episode. American football. Yep, um, yep. And you'd never know the distillery is where it is. It's in, you know, the, just, just sort of this side street, and it looks like a bit of an industrial estate. As soon as you open the door, you walk in, and you see this absolutely beautiful uh, visitor's center, uh, there's like, there's a bar there, there's a shop there, there's a cask in the corner if you want to bottle your own. When you're mm. in that visitor center, you know, there's windows there that look into the actual distillery floor itself. Uh, to answer the question that I know is floating around your head right now, I did not taste the fill your own. They had just put it on and they hadn't tapped it yet. Oh, so tap that cask. Tap that cask. The one before it, however, was a four-year-old from a from a red wine cask. And, okay. Um, okay. Yeah, I was I was wondering why when I saw you the other week, I wasn't presented with a milk and honey fill your own bottle since I was unable to travel with you. But you've in a way answered that question, but in another way, kind of not. So I did return with a a little gift from Israel, though. And it was a very kind gift, a very delicious gift, and I mm-hmm. thank you for it. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, so you look into the window, and you can see on your left side uh, the two stills. You've got your, your wash still, which is 9,000 liters, and then your spirit still, which is 3,500 liters. To the right is your um, mash tun, which is on stilts, by the way. You actually have to climb a ladder if you want to look into mm. it. You've got to hmm. climb about eight rungs of a ladder to, to get in there. Hmm. Are you able to see the turning mechanism? Yes, you can. Through the legs of the stilts? Not through the legs of the stilts. You, you've, it's, a complete, it's a stainless steel mash ton. You cannot see into it at all unless you but, climb. But, but I mean the engine of the arm. Oh, uh, yeah, you can see it. Tends to be underneath the mash ton, powering yeah. what's above it. You can't really see that. I do have a picture of the mash tun, and I'll I'll post it up on Instagram. I'll post it on our Facebook page. In fact, everything that I'm describing here, I've got pictures of it all. Makes and, sense. And, and I'll put that up. To answer your question, I don't recall seeing any of the mechanisms outside that would turn the arms inside of the mash tun. Okay. Just as a very quick aside, the reason I ask is Gordon Bruce at Nokdu Distillery who produces the uh, they you know they release under the Anok name mm-hmm. uh, as all of our listeners know I don't know why I'm taking the time to explain this to them but <laughs> he is so very proud of the engine that powers his mash tun mm-hmm. the, the arm uh, in the mash tun um, it comes from an Italian sewage works Whoa. not 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 the engine not the arm but the engines are used at these Italian uh, sewage works. Interesting. And it's and for me, it just makes great sense of the work the arm is doing to move all of this wet barley. Think of the weight in wet barley. Yeah. And then think about the weight in having to turn sewage, right? And think of the power that you need in that engine. And so after spending time with Gordon Bruce at Nokdu, mm. I always think about the engine 
that's powering the the arm, whether it's louder or semi louder, yeah, or or rake and plow. If you think about uh, a Brooklady or you think about a Springbank, yeah. and so just the thought of a mash tun being on stilts makes me think, oh, how exciting! You can probably see the engine that powers the arms. Yeah, so that that's what was going on in my head when I asked you that question. You know, c- come to think of it, I remember going to the Krugelki Distillery. And part of the tour that they gave us was the floor beneath the mash tun. And you, mm-hmm. you and they have a, a fu- it's not a semi-lauder, it's a full lauder. It's massive. Mm-hmm. And you look up and you can see all of the mechanics. And it's beautiful. There you go. There you go. Um, it's funny. Where did you tour yeah. I toured Krugelki in 2015. Huh. I was with uh, Ilana Ifrat and Josh Wortman. I remember that trip that you took. Yeah. yeah, okay, I didn't know you got into Krigeliki on that Well, one. you know what it is? We were, at the time, we were spending time with Neil Boyd of Ian McLeod, who he Indeed. looks after Tam Dew and Glenn Goyne and Isle of Sky and some other brands. But he used to work for Bacardi. Ah. And actually, during his time at Bacardi, he was in charge of... Um, redoing the Aberfeldy Visitor Center, and he was working on some other visitor center. But because he had friends within Bacardi, they gave us a private tour of Krigeliki because Bacardi owns Krigeliki. So That makes good sense. And it's a distillery that you don't get into. There are not distill, or at least at that time, there were no distillery tours. So we got to see stuff that, that no one got to see. And similar to our listeners, you know, I'm trying to explain to them a distillery that unless they're headed to Tel Aviv, yeah. they're not going to see anytime soon. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Very, and aside on the aside, Neil Boyd, great, great lad. We should have him interviewed for the podcast. We should. Yeah. He's, he's, yeah. he's good fun, fountain of knowledge. Yeah. Um, He'd be a great, especially yeah. moving from Bacardi over to Ian McLeod. You know, there's yeah. a couple of Anywho, 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 we've gone down a, a path and an alley and a side street. Now we're in someone's back garden. So bringing it all the way back. Um, yeah. Okay, so, so you mashed on on stilts at Milk and Honey Distillery. Yep. And then, to okay, and so this is basically if you're in the visitor center looking through the window, again, the stills on your left, the mashed tun at your right, maybe at, say, 3 o'clock-ish. Mm-hmm. And and then at your four o'clock ish, maybe five o'clock ish, um, you've got four washbacks, also stainless washbacks, also on stilts, but shorter stilts. They they look like brewers, fermenters rather than washbacks. And and be and you'll hear it in the interview, because of the high temperature in Tel Aviv, and when I was there, I think it was around 35, 38 degrees Celsius, so in the upper 90s. Certainly um, warm, yeah. Right. Um, on these washbacks, they have uh, an outer jacket, uh, basically a cooling jacket. If they didn't have that, the heat and humidity in Tel Aviv would kill the yeast. So it's basically yeah. to control yeah. the temperature. Uh, you don't see it as a separate jacket, but it's just, you know, something I wanted to explain to our listeners. Yeah, that uh, makes good sense. You go further into there, uh, past the uh, mash tun is the sensory room. Uh, 
and it's in the sensory room. That's where we had our conversation. And, and so that's where Tomer, who is the, the master distiller slash master blender, he tests all of the cask samples. That's when he starts figuring out how to put whiskeys together because, because you're dealing with this very hot climate in Tel Aviv, the whiskey is maturing in casks far different than almost any other place on earth. You may have some similarities, say in Taiwan, say in India, so, you know, these warmer climate um, countries, but because of the warmer temperature, your whiskey is going to mature a bit different in, say, New Chard Oak than it would in Scotland, than it would even, sure. in, even in Kentucky, where in Kentucky it gets really cold. In the winter, it doesn't get really cold in the winter in Tel Aviv. It may get down to the mid-60s, but that's not really cold. Um, Tel Aviv locals <laughs> walk around in sweaters complaining of the cold. Right. If they're anything like Californians in 60-degree temperatures. Wearing mittens. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, so, so they've, you know... In that sensory room, you get an understanding of what they have in their warehouse, which is new charred oak, um, STR casks, basically um, dechar, rechar, um, X red wine, X bourbon, X rum, X sherry, X port, etc. But every cask that they have, even the X wine casks and the X sherry casks, they're all kosher. So they held kosher wine, they held kosher sherry, they held kosher port. Now, getting back to my initial point about people from Tel Aviv, <laughs> the folks from Milk and Honey are not a religious group. However, like us, they're respectful, right? We do not, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we never, with any of our single cast nation whiskeys, seek kosher certification Rather, we like to give full cast notes so people can make up their own minds. In the case of Milk and Honey, they go that step further where they say, you know what, let's make this a kosher process so that everybody can enjoy our whiskeys, whether they're kosher keeping or not. And we just want yep, to be smart. respectful of, of our kosher keeping brothers and sisters, which I think is really cool. They don't have to do that. They're not, and, and, and we talk about this in the interview, and I think this is the way they've always portrayed themselves is, like us, we are whiskey first and then respectful of kosher second. We may be, mm -hmm. we may have launched this company back in 2011 as the Jewish Whiskey Company. We may have had a festival called Whiskey Jubilee, but we've always led with whiskey first. And then yeah, it's the other true. stuff to follow, and that's and yep. that's how Milk and Honey uh, have run their operation. Nice, very nice. Um, oh, can I add one one last thing? I, that was going to be my question. Is there anything you want to add before we go over to the interview? <laughs> so, if you go outside of the still room into their back lot, that's where they have all of their empty casks that are ready for for fill. Uh, not not a guy named Phil. Um, just you know, <laughs> were we talking about dad jokes before? Um, hashtag hashtag dad jokes. But the the cool thing about this is because it is you're you're in this country that 
it only rains for a couple of months in the winter time when these casts are outside so they don't dry out every single day they've got to go out and spray the casks keep them wet keep the wood nice and wet so they don't ruin the casks yeah that must be a a remarkable amount of care going on when you're basically storing casks in a desert right it's <laughs> it's 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 so interesting all of these things that they have to take into consideration to ensure that they can just produce whiskey. And then on top of that, they have some casks. So first off, most of their casks are maturing on site in Tel Aviv. They've got in, you know, in this building, they have warehouse one, which is a very small warehouse, but that has all the casks that they're sort of keeping an eye on for uh, an upcoming release. They have warehouse two, which carries most of their casks, warehouse three that they're growing into. And all in all, you know, just to give you an idea, they're, they're sitting on around 2,000 casks right now. Okay? Okay. Then on top of that, they have 16 casks sitting atop a hotel at the Dead Sea. <laughs> Of course they do. <laughs> and it's and said it's, every distiller everywhere. Said every distiller everywhere. <laughs> and it's sitting in basically a chicken wire cage atop this this hotel. Um, and it's open. It's just a chicken wire cage. So it's in the open so air. Open to the elements. Open to the elements. It's over four hundred meters below sea level. It's at the lowest point on Earth. It's easily forty degrees Celsius. So forty degrees just give our American listeners, an idea that's 104 degrees Fahrenheit, and then constant humidity, constant salt in the air. And I remember posting this on, I don't know, some page, and someone yep. said, Well, they could make it lower if they didn't put it atop a hotel. <laughs> <laughs> like once once you're 400 meters below sea level, a seven floor, you know, seven story hotel doesn't make that much difference. Um, you know, at that point, you're really splitting hairs. <laughs> but what? Yeah. The- yeah. Now, if it was ground level Dead Sea, then you'd have my attention. <laughs> right. Um, but here's what that does in Tel Aviv. Their angel shares around 10 to 12 percent on average, which is the exact same as Amrut. Okay, mm-hmm. so this this gives you a, a signpost to go by. Yeah, and they're in full size barrels, just like at Amrut. Always full size. Always, always, always full size. Oh, I take yep. that back. I mean, they just just <laughs> like <laughs> I'm 100 percent committed to this. Well, except for <laughs> I mean, think of any single malt producer yeah. in Scotland. Yeah. yeah, there's always little experiments going on here right? and there. They've yeah. got octaves, yeah. blood tubs, quarter casks, etc. Yeah. Um, yeah. But in the Dead Sea, their angel share, because of the heat, because of the humidity, because of the the air pressure of where they are, they go from an average 10% angel share to an average 20% Angel share. <laughs> you could almost see it leaving the cask at that point. Oh yeah, yeah. Gosh. And so they've they think what they're going to do because this was just 
a test. What is it going to do to the whiskey? How much are we going to lose? What does it do to the mouthfeel? What does it do to the flavors? Does it add a salty element, etc.? And what we found when we were there is that it adds massive texture. Like it, mm. the, it becomes really oily and rich in texture. Uh, the ABV goes way up. You're getting into the 70s easily. Um, <laughs> Bye-bye, water. <laughs> and, <laughs> we don't need you here. <laughs> and so what what they thought they would do is maybe just put casks out there for six months at a time. They're going to lose some, but what they get in return with mouthfeel, what they get in return with that sped-up maturation, um, is f- for them, and you'll hear... Tomer talk about it, especially when he talks about what they do in their mash tun, where they lose efficiencies because they only do two waters in their mash tun rather than three. They lose efficiency with the maturation, but what they gain in quality of whiskey supersedes that. And so they're, they're thinking of adding more and more casks to the top of this hotel. Huh. This is, this is funny that you talk about efficiencies here. I, I once led a whiskey tour of Scotland with um, a family where half had come in from Massachusetts and half had come in from Israel. And okay. uh, one, of the, one of the members that came in from Israel was an engineer. Hmm. And as we went around Scotland, he kept looking at, at every process yeah. and, and kept saying, you know you're losing efficiency there and you know you're losing efficiency here. Yeah. And you know you're losing efficiency here. Yeah. And and the answer he kept getting in Scotland was, yes, but we're getting the best whiskey we can. Um, and he, he couldn't really get his head around why you would go with loss of efficiency in the name of flavor or yeah. or even, you know, but we're consistent, right? Mm. <laughs> it might be loss of efficiency, but the product is consistent. Yeah. And so it's really interesting to know that this Israeli distillery is talking about loss of, of efficiencies, but they're fighting for the best flavor they can get. Right. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to point out to my Israeli engineer that I took around Scotland that his home country is doing the same damn thing in the name of flavor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a, a special thing, I think, when you... You know, you're dealing with a uh, an industry that, yes, it needs to be efficient. Yes, distilleries are basically factories, but in the end, you need to be producing a product that brings people back. And so you're yeah. always, you know, towing that line of you you want to make money, but you need to make money, you need to bring on people who enjoy what you're producing so can you always be right yeah absolutely harkens back to that conversation two episodes ago that we had with anthony wills yeah right where he's grappling with i could bring in this yeast that gives me this flavor but you know at the end of the day we'd also take a look at yield yield isn't going to guide how we think about flavors Mm. but it is going to be part of an equation that leads to us thinking about the economies of our releases. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's lovely. This is why we were able to go from distillery to distillery and manager to manager, owner, owner, distiller, distiller, and have these types of conversations and say, mm. what are you valuing? 
How does your equation play out? Where do you see yourself um, guiding the releases yeah. of your distillery? Yeah. So, I, you know, we can keep having these conversations and everybody's going to have their own personal take on it. Um, and we can even circle back and revisit and say, how are things going with that? Uh, how <laughs> well, you changed your mind? <laughs> think, think about the distilleries that are focused almost solely on efficiency. Mm-hmm. Grain whiskey distilleries mm-hmm. <laughs> where, okay, how can you be efficient with your wood? Well, use your casks two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times. How mm-hmm. can you be efficient with your spirit? Well, use a column still that constantly distills and you're getting it to, you know, 80, 90, sorry, 95% alcohol. You're basically making vodka. And the only time that grain whiskey gets really palatable, really interesting and, and almost remarkable, well, you have to wait 20, 30, 40 years. Well, at, at that point, then you're then t- what has efficiency gotten you? Yeah. You know, yep. they're, they're just making components for blends. But when you're dealing with a single malt producer, you need to be efficient to make money, but you need to concentrate on flavor to ensure to bring people back to you at all times. Yeah, no, I think it's the nature of the trade-offs that are made. Yeah. Um, and that, that's yeah. why I talk about it as an equation, where you're yeah. not just guided by one end of the equation, it's multiple factors playing a role in that equation that gets you to your release. So yeah. that's, that's probably enough from us. We should probably give the floor over to yeah. the people that you spent time with in Tel Aviv. All right. Hi, Joshua. How are you, Tomer? I'm great, thank you. That's good. All right, well, thanks for joining me, and we'll just end it here. <laughs> thank you very much for uh, interviewing me. So obviously, s- single malt in Israel, very warm temperature. Yes. Very different climate than, than most whiskey-producing countries. That's right. From barley to bottle, what do you have to do to make up for the difference in, in climate that, say, some uh, a producer in Scotland doesn't have to worry about? Well, ah. what do we have? Martinis? What's happening here? Hi, Tal. Instead of... Uh, oh, talking to the mic. Okay. Yeah. It's just a little so further it's back. A, no problem. <laughs> right it's, here. Yeah? Okay. Levantine gin, and instead of the vermouth, I use the manzanilla sherry. Ooh. Yeah. And a little bit of Cheers. olive oil. Cheers. Okay, so speaking about the hot climate maturation, basically we have a really high cutting point compared to other uh, distilleries. That means that we are cutting on around 70, 71% uh, alcohol. That's where your hearts end. Ends. Where, yes. where do your hearts start? In about 79. Okay. So, so that's a really narrow cut. Yeah, it's very high and it's very narrow. Yeah. Most of our Work is during the maturation, keeping the casks, checking it from time to time, mm-hmm. and uh, checking that it's not overaged. And at the end of the maturation, we have blending, picking the right casks, the right amount okay. from each type of cask, and uh, doing the perfect blend. Could we back up yeah. to the mashing? Because I, I know that your mashing is a little different than a lot of distilleries. You've got, you've got most distilleries 
that will do a three-water mash. You've got some that do a four-water mash, like Ben Riach comes to mind, and there's one other one that's escaping me. But you do a two-water mash. Yeah, we're doing two-water mash, but I think it uh, affects our efficiency. We are less efficient than other distilleries uh, by constructing mm-hmm. the sugars from the seeds, from the barley. Mm-hmm. We cannot do the third water step because uh, we are not working on weekends. Right. That's for kosher reasons. Mm-hmm. So we cannot keep the water, the third water, for the next for the next first water. In yeah. Three days. If you can, cannot control your fermentation, it's you know you're losing stuff. So exactly. And uh, of course, it's, it's because of kosherness, and it's because we want to go to the beach on Saturday. So <laughs> I think it's. Uh, <laughs> so we are doing two water steps. Okay. During mashing. Uh, that means that we get less sugars from what we should get or can get. Okay. That means that we are a little bit less of efficiency mm-hmm. than uh, other distilleries, but we still have really good wort or wash to work with. That's what I noticed. The, the wort was very clear by comparison mm-hmm. to yeah. most Scotch whiskey warts. And uh, Eitan had described to me why the wart is clear. Can you go into that, why the wart is clearer than most? Ours, it's, it looks like a lager. It's a, it's a see-through. And uh, usually... Usually I, there's a cloudiness yeah, involved. And there, I, it's, obviously there's a hue to it. There's color to it, yeah. but there's not a cloudiness. It's, it's, you can see through it like you would a lager. But okay, so, you, so you've, you've, got, you've got your wart... And now we're going to your, uh, your washbacks, and you're using a Belgian brewer's yeast? Yes, we use Fermentis M1. It's a distiller's yeast. I think so I saw some of the distilleries in Scotland using the, the exact same yeast. Uh, it gives some fruity and uh, florally flavors and mm-hmm. pro- flavor profiles to the to the uh, wash mm-hmm. and uh, it's very strongest it works almost in every temperature but we keep the temperatures between 30 and 33 degrees to have our profile our, yeah. our taste profile that we want to get and you you've got to use there there are jackets on your fermenters like coolant jackets yeah. to keep we the have temperature coolant jackets to keep it in the temperature that we want to keep it because we have really warm climate, yeah. so the temperature will raise up really quickly, and we want to keep it between 30 and 33. Mm-hmm. So we have double jacket in the fermentation tanks, in the washbacks. Okay. To keep it, when it raises to 33, we cool it to 30. That's the range that we keep it. Okay. You, you just, you were outside for a second now. Or I know, yeah. And it, it's amazing. It's uh. Now, quarter to six in the afternoon, mm-hmm. it's around 35 degrees, and hell percent of humidity, and, yeah. it's, uh, and you actually can see it, and you can feel it, and of course, everything is, is warming up, so the fermentation tanks has to be cooled down, because just think about uh, the steels and everything, just look at the guys in the production line, they're oh, just running around they're... from fan to fan. <laughs> yes, sweating their asses yeah. off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
So, okay, and then your fermentation time is, what, 48 to 60 hours, or is it a little longer sometimes? No, uh, longer. It's 60 hours to 72. Oh, okay. Depends on the uh, season of the year. Mm-hmm. Now we are at the hot season, so it's about Fewer hours. 60 years oh, okay. average. In the winter, it can take longer. But, but most of the year, I think it's really warm. And you have to understand that the coldest day in Tel Aviv can be 9 degrees. Yeah. Something like that. Once in two years, it can be go down to 5 degrees in the middle of the night. But uh, that's it. It's, uh, wow. So, yeah, it's, uh, when, when it's cold here, it's maybe spring. And so, in yeah, the exactly. Yeah, in Northern America. <laughs> it's when I put my, my short sleeve shirts on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Okay. All right, so, so that's the fermentation, and then we talked about distillation. Obviously, it's, it's two times distilled. Your, your wash still is 6,000 liters? 9,000 liters. Nine, sorry, 9,000 liters, and your spirit still is 3,000 liters. 3,500. 3,500, okay. So we are following the Scottish method. Yeah. Of course, we will never be Scotch, yeah. but we are producing Scotch-style Yeah. Single malt whiskey. Yeah. That's an Israeli that. twist, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's a really good question. What's, where does the Israeli twist come into play? I think the play is mostly at the maturation. We have really hot climate country. Yeah. That means that uh, the spirit, the new make, matures really quickly. And... Uh, I don't like to make the comparison between uh, one year equals yeah. to yeah. how many years, but uh, it matures really quick. Well, we tasted, I think it was four years old. It was the, well, there was two. There was the red wine cask one, and then there was one that was PX finished. If I put a blindfold over my eyes and I didn't know what I was tasting, that PX one, which was four years old, is that right? It's about four years about old. About four years? I would have assumed that it was an 18 or 20-year-old Glendronach or something like that. Okay, so I, I would not say thank you for that because <laughs> sometimes I think 18 years old is too much, okay. too old yeah. Fair for, uh, for a good whiskey. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think most of the whiskeys will be great at 12 to 15 years. But again, it depends on the climate. Yeah. That okay. you are mature the whiskey. So if, if we're looking at what happens here, the fast maturation, one side is fast maturation and the other side is the wood management because you cannot do fast maturation without the good wood management because you're going to lose a lot and you're going to, for us, over matured is going to be like for just like that, you know? Yeah. And uh, so Tomer has to be, to monitor every every single cask and, and every batch and and use the right casks, use the right wood. And I think that, first of all, for our Israeli twist, it's really our weather here in Tel Aviv, which is hot and humid. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're just one kilometer from the beach, so you can actually see the whole... You, you actually saw the colors that, that are crazy after yeah. a few, you know, just a few months. And But it's really... You need to, to be on the meter all the time. Mm. And the second thing is uh, play with our kind of casks. So the first thing was... Uh, what we did with the pomegranate casks. Yeah. And so it was it was actually a good idea, but we were really wishing to be, it's a good marketing idea. Mm-hmm. But, and then when we put the spirit in, we were just wishing it to be good. Right. And 
you tasted it. It's, it's, yeah. I think it's, it's such an interesting product. And Tomer is playing with the fast matura- full maturation and with finishes. So it's, a, it's our own grape, uh, a pomegranate variety that grows only in Israel. It's a specific variety. Okay. Uh, it's from a winery that makes wines only from pomegranates. And Tomer really, I think, you, you can actually yeah. describe. We are always trying to mix between the classic and the core range of cask that we have, mm-hmm. which is ex-bourbon, STR, and uh, red wine cask, and always look for interesting cask and uh, other casks that will give you more of the Israeli that we have, yeah. or typical cask from here, which the pomegranate are, yeah. uh, the cask are a really good it's example exclusive. for this. It's really exclusive. Really exclusive. No, no one mm-hmm. else, I think, in the world is making wines of the pomegranates. We're not sure, but uh, you know, yeah. in Israel, there's a winery that makes uh, around a million bottles a year. And, and it's a fortified wine, right? Not all of them. No, there okay. are some regular wines. Just regular, regular just wines out of pomegranates. Red wines, yeah, but we can actually fill the They have dry wines yeah. and they have fortified wines. Okay. And lots of cosmetics, but we're not using the cosmetics. In yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe for the gin, but not, yeah. Ex-cosmetic cosmetic. <laughs> Ex-cosmetic cosmetic. What I found interesting, and, and so I'm, I'm going to rewind a little bit, mm-hmm. we, we met with you guys in Edinburgh, yeah. and we were at Whiskey Bar. And we had the entire Impex team with us. And you had the what you call young single malt here, yep. which in the U.S. will be called whiskey, whiskey. and bloom. Mm-hmm. So it's spirit that's almost whiskey, but not whiskey yet. And then you had your new make, you've had gin, and then the various cask samples. And when I saw the pomegranate one, I thought to myself, self? <laughs> uh, this is, it's it's going to be more of a, a shtick yeah. than anything. Um, it started off with a shtick idea, right? but we really wished it to be good. And yeah, and then, and then we poured it, and it became, I, I told you before, it became the favorite of everybody yeah. <laughs> in the group, so much so that, that one of the people on the Impex team would hide the sample <laughs> bottle. He didn't want us to find it because he wanted to keep it all for himself. <laughs> well... I think that's the mix of uh, we're trying to source some interesting cask that will be good for marketing or things from Israel that we want to mm-hmm. to do. And at the bottom line, you have you must do it good. Yeah. It must be good so we can release it. Yeah. If it won't be drinkable, you will not be able to bottle it. So speaking of it must be good, yes. and you talked about it before, you feel that a lot of hold on looks like you've got someone trying to grab your attention okay. continue yeah i'll be back okay yeah okay so actually while while tomer is away i wanted to speak about more israeli twists what's that you're going to want to speak about more israeli twists so, we'll get back to, i want no to problem. get back to that with him okay because i wanted yeah, to yeah, discuss so, yeah, blending yeah. and things like that but i'm really curious to know if you could tell me the genesis behind milk and honey the idea behind it, the, which I understand goes back to 2012, but distillation came far after yeah, that. Um, so. so I came back to work here. I, I never worked for Milk and Honey mm. uh, when it was just starting, but I was uh, actually in the first meeting. And, oh, okay. and I think that Gal Kalkstein, uh, the, uh, the owner and founder, was a part of a group that actually wanted him to be interested in, in that and mm. 
Um, actually, they're good friends of his that worked in, in the high-tech uh, industry. They went into some of our whiskey tastings. Actually, one of them was mine because I was hmm. uh, Johnny Walker Black Label Brand Ambassador okay. back then doing all kinds of single malt uh, tastings. Fell in love with whiskey. And then they uh, convinced Gal and started drink whiskey. And he fell in love with whiskey. And for him, as a, you know, as an entrepreneur and then, you know, a high-tech person, yeah. he just wanted to be a pioneer and huh. really wanted to make the first Israeli single malt whiskey, and he didn't think it was that big <laughs> as, as we do it right now. And yeah. uh, it's like, uh, it's like you know, the, the joke about the accountant that tells you, you know, the, the most expensive way to drink for free is to open a distillery. <laughs> yes. And, yeah, but it's, so I didn't think, I don't think he, he, he thought it's going to be that big, but when, you, when you're on the road and you, when you're going to be a uh, 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 distillery owner, when you're yeah. going to make an international whiskey, you have to think big because, you know, you have this barrier. Mm. If you, if you want to make it small, you can sell it just around. But if you mm. want to make it big, you have to, to leap, you know, a few yeah. steps ahead. Yeah. And I think that uh, he didn't think it's going to be that big. But uh, so it started there with just a few friends drinking whiskey and thinking about making the first Israeli whiskey. Mm-hmm. And look, look what we are now. <laughs> it's Well, I, I think I may have told you this in Edinburgh or yeah, maybe okay. it was in New York. Yeah. I remember years ago talking with Gal Granoff. Yeah. And, you know, he has his, his, his Whiskey Israel blog. And he always does, well, I don't know if he still does it, but he always did a, an April Fool's post. And one of his April Fool's posts was whiskey from Israel, a distillery opened. And, and it was an April Fool's joke because you would think, yeah. who's going to build a distillery in, in Israel? And, and, you know, fast forward how many years later and, yeah. and here we are. But I, I can tell you one thing yeah. before that. I think when Gal was still not in legal drinking age, Gal Granov, <laughs> we were th- really thinking about opening a distillery in, in, in Israel. Yeah. And we call it Glen Jordan. It's uh, Yoni, Shai, and me. And <laughs> we understood that this is probably going to be very, very hard to uh, get some money for an unpatient nation like us. <laughs> yeah. And what Yoni did is bring in a half-matured uh, cask from the Isle of Arne distillery yeah. and matured oh, it in Israel. I had and, that. Okay. So this yeah. is your, uh, so I was a part of that. Oh, you were a part of that. Yeah, oh, okay. and I, I was I was a part of everything is yeah, <laughs> to do yeah, with whiskey yeah, back yeah, then. Okay, there you go. It was like, uh, you know, two bottles of whiskey back yeah. then in Israel. That's it. So uh, yeah. And but um I think that and Gal Granov was, you know, he he made it uh out for for everyone to read and mm-hmm. and really doing uh, lots of tasting, but there are like, you know, Whiskey uh, industry, even before Galgranov era, yeah. and a, a bit, uh, it was really hard and really expensive. And I think the changing of taxation in Israel that occurred in 2014, I think, right? Because um, it was a 200 percent. It was yeah, 192, 192, and then. When it's changed, uh, so the very cheap stuff like Arnak and very cheap vodka went up, yeah. and the really expensive stuff went down. And then it was, uh, I think it was the time for, for Israeli uh, craft and, and premium spirits to, to go mm. on. Okay. So, okay, so you, you build the distillery, you're launching your brand, you're, you're in the Netherlands, you're in France, 
you are in Australia, yep. uh, UK, a few other countries. And what I, what I found very interesting is you're not necessarily leading as an Israeli distillery or as a Jewish distillery. This is, we're a whiskey producer. That's the first thing that you say. And then it, the rest kind of follows. Was that intentional from, from the get-go? First of all, we're from Tel Aviv. Yeah. So Tel Aviv is like a country inside the country. Mm. And of course, we are Israeli. Most of us, you know, all of us were born here. And um, so first of all, for us, we are a craft distillery situated in Tel Aviv. We're going to make, we want to make the best whiskey like people making, you know, uh, all around uh, the world, not in the traditional countries. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna make the best whiskey we can we can do. And so we are sitting in Tel Aviv. We are Israeli. We are Jewish. We're not looking for the Jewish, especially for the Jewish market. But our added value is that we are kosher yeah. and we are Jewish. I think we we first want to be recognized as really good premium whiskey quality yeah. whiskey and then it's it's good to have uh, to be kosher so we can we can sell to more communities it's the beautiful thing about kosher is anybody can eat or drink kosher you don't have to be jewish to do that but it's yeah. it's but it's welcoming to the kosher keeping community that they can trust in that your products, all of them will be kosher. I think it's, it's harder to find a kosher restaurant in Tel Aviv than in New York. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. No, not anymore. It used to be like that, but now yeah. it's a, it's a yeah, little bit different. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, kosher is, for, for lots of people, kosher is a, a certificate of, uh, you know, let's say, of quality. Yeah. And, uh, and for us, in, in whiskey, whiskey making, it's not... It's not very hard to be kosher. So we're not working on weekends. We are not working on uh, Passover, you know, mm -hmm. because... Of course, yeah. yeah. And uh, when we use uh, wine casks, we use kosher casks. Kosher, kosher wine casks. So the majority of our listeners are from the U.S. And I would say a fair majority of our listeners are not Jewish. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about the idea of kosher, most people think that a rabbi comes in and blesses things, much like a priest would come in and bless things, right? And, 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 it's, and, it's, and it's, it's interesting because I think Jews know more about Christianity than Christians know about Jews, yeah. right? So, so for those listeners that don't fully understand what would make a whiskey kosher, what, what what makes a whiskey kosher? So first, we are uh, we are not working on Shabbat on mm -hmm. uh, weekends Sabbath. and Saturdays. Weekends. Yeah, yeah, that is a must uh, a must uh, rule. Yeah, and and Jewish week and Jewish holidays. Yeah, and Jewish holidays, okay. which uh, defined as Shabbat too. Yes. Uh, then we have Pesach, mm -hmm. which is the Jewish Passover. Yes. Can I say that? Jewish Passover? No. Uh, you it's, could just say Passover. It's the same thing. Yeah. Pesach okay. and Passover is the same thing. Okay. It's okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> Passover. Yeah. And I think the most complicated... By the way, if you're a winery, you can work on Passover. 
but we are doing with chametz. Be- right, because you're working with grain. You yeah, cannot work so we can exactly. So that's that's. I'm glad you brought that mm-hmm. up. So that's a good point. Uh, I think the most complicated thing is about the the wine casks. Mm. Uh, everyone wants to use sherry casks, mm-hmm. and of course some other uh, red wine cask or white wine cask, and. The kosher issue is about grape products. Yeah. So if the wine is kosher, the wine that was inside the cask is kosher, so there is no problem. Mm-hmm. The, the problem is using cask that contains non-kosher, non-kosher wine. wines before. Okay. Uh, that leads us to the sherry. Yeah. We made a sherry, a kosher sherry, which is, you cannot find any kosher sherry. You really can't. We had to produce kosher sherry in Jerez. Yeah. And with a, with a rabbi from Barcelona. We actually took a rabbi from Barcelona to make a kosher sherry wine in Jerez yeah. to season the cask. Okay. And then we got nothing to do with those wines. Probably poured them or sold them. We didn't tell us. <laughs> and uh, then turn we them just... Into vinegar or... Yeah, maybe. Sherry, and yeah. we just brought the cask here with... You, you saw the stamps and it's a... Yeah. It's a wax uh, seal. Yeah, uh, a wax seal on it. And so... And Tomer actually visited the place. Uh, yeah, that's an amazing place, but yeah. not because of the kosher thing. <laughs> Just <laughs> when, when were you there, when were you in Herat? It's uh, an industry, all the sherry industry is an industry that uh, is about to disappear. And it's Just living so just because yeah. of the whiskey. Yep. But oh, it's because McCallum. an amazing world. <laughs> <laughs> McCallum <laughs> is actually yeah. keeping the Spanish know, alive. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's amazing over there. So to close out the, the kosher aspect of it, and again, for our listeners who don't really understand what would make a whiskey kosher or not kosher, what the rabbi does is he just comes in to make sure that the processes meet kosher standards. The process of the winemaking. Of the winemaking. Yeah. The winemaking for the casks. Yeah. Of course, we have this uh, inspector here which comes like once a week, twice a uh, week, and even more. I don't see him, so... But you're not here. <laughs> at, the, at the basics, only Jew can produce kosher wine products. Right. Uh, kosher grape products. So it must be Jew to produce it, and uh, a Shabbat keeper yeah, uh, Jew. It is for the wines. Yes, this is there was for no, the wine. no whiskey in Bible time. There was wine in Bible time. So we have laws. But my recommendation is, if you don't know a lot about kosher thing, that means that you don't care about kosher. So just drink a good whiskey. Yeah, good whiskey and, is uh, good whiskey, right? And if you do know about kosher things, so we are kosher, you can drink us. But we, when, we, yeah. when we are using um, red wine, white wine casks, um, not from, from Jerez, and so we are using uh, kosher Israeli wines. Okay. So it's easy for us because most of the wines here are kosher. Yeah, so you don't even have to worry about no. that aspect of it because they're already dealing with exactly. the so, rabbis and the certification so, company. Yeah. So we, we also get kosher certificate for all the ingredients that we buy. Got it. Also, the casks that arrive from the U.S., we have kosher certificate for that. Okay. If you ask me if that's important, I don't know if that's important, but... We have it. But you do it. Yeah. Yep. No, I th- I th- yeah, for us, it's an added value. I think uh, and when, when you get a cask from, from a winery, you get it 
with, with the kosher certificate because mm-hmm. the wine is kosher, so it's okay, and, and you can see the name of the winery, so yeah. it's not a problem. Okay, it's it's easier here because most of our, our wineries are kosher. Yeah, okay. easier to be kosher in Israel when you follow the laws you can make and not have to do mevushel or boil the, the wine later on. So right. it's, it's good wines and good casks. Got it. Okay, cool, cool. So to get back to, we were talking about what makes milk and honey whiskey, what's, what's the Tel Aviv quality to it? What's, and you, you said blending. And yes. so talk to me about... well. The casks you use in the processes, what you look for and how you, how you produce the whiskeys in blending that you look for. Well, uh, in my imagination, I'm just started working about it, but uh, the whiskeys should be really drinkable and uh, should be accessible to almost every palate. Mm-hmm. Uh, f- most of the whiskeys will be based on ex-bourbon which okay. I find the most drinkable and accessible mm. uh, yeah. cask type or whiskey type uh, to drink. Then we will have more casks in the core range, which are STR or red wine casks from Israel. Uh, and we have also some crazy casks or more uh, additional casks to keep it interesting mm. for the whiskey geeks, for the people that want to drink more than just a classic or yeah. our basic style yeah. whiskey. One of the things that we discussed earlier is you're, you're also maturing a certain number of virgin oak casks that you use to amplify f- flavors or, or change the whiskey, but you only do a little bit of it. Can you talk yeah. about uh, what, what you're doing with that? Yeah, so virgin oak casks are... Uh, not commonly used also in in Scotland. Yeah, it's uh, rare. It's, it's, it's used mostly in the U.S., I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, here in the hot climate maturation, if you use virgin oak cask, it will be undrinkable after yeah. not three years. after yeah, Over-matured after two months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it will be over-oaked, over-matured, and too hard to drink. Mm. So I just use it as... As a little bit uh, like a spice. from like yeah, just, just like to a spice, add a little yeah. bit of wood and uh, and background to yeah. the blend, and it adds a lot. Even if you add two drops to a glass or not to a glass to a bottle, it will be it changes. Yeah, it will change it. So I don't keep a lot of those casks, but uh, I have some. But you you also work with, and, and this is a Jim Swan thing. And, and for our listeners, I think, and I could be wrong. Milk and Honey Distillery was really the last new project that Jim Swan worked on before he passed, right? Because you killed him? I don't know. I, I cannot it's, sign it, on it. Yeah, because but you I, killed him. I, yeah. <laughs> I think... Uh, <laughs> maybe it's I, either I cannot Astro sign Nick on or, it, but or, uh, we were... Uh, Annabelle? Yeah. Uh, Nekneen? Or one Nekneen. of us. It's, it's either yeah. us or okay. Nekneen. Okay. Yeah. But, but he introduced... And please correct me if I'm wrong, but he introduced to you the STR cask. Yes. Shave, uh, toasted, recharge. One of his instructions was uh, to buy casks from specific uh, cooperage. And he told us that he developed with them uh, STR type casks, mm-hmm. which is shaving, toasting, 
recharging. Mm-hmm. It's a technique that he developed with this uh, cooperage. And uh, I think all it was of originally for Kavalan, uh, for uh, the Solis. I think he was de- yeah, developing Kavalan it for Solis. Kavalan was the okay. first that, uh, yeah, interesting. that used this cask. But all of the James One distillers are using are it using now. Are using cask. Kilholman just released... STR, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, STR has been matured. using it. Yeah, yeah Cotswold. Uh, yeah. And it gives really, really good results. And uh, so, and so the, the, the part of the reason why I'm asking this question, because we talked about your use of virgin oak, you add a little bit to the final product, and it brings out uh, much more flavors. Is there a reason that you would use the virgin oak over an STR cask? The STR gives you other profile than the very different profile. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it depends what I want to get. Okay. Uh, the STR gives you more spiciness, more uh, food taste. So. The virgin oak will give you a lot of food and uh, mm. other other taste, other uh, taste than the STR. So it depends what you want to get. Okay. Now you guys are at a point where you're about to release whiskey you've been i mean you've you've had whiskey releases for a while but mm-hmm. there's young single malt uh i know you recently did a, a four-year-old for the bottle of your own here in the distillery yeah, the commercial release is going to be in the end yeah. of this but you're year, getting yeah. to the point where for commercial releases come next year it's all going to be whiskey mm-hmm. three years old or yes. more and i'm curious because of the very fast maturation you know, your young single malt is a year and a half to two and a half years, somewhere around there? Uh, from one year to two years, I think, yeah, until now. Okay. Yeah. So now we are fast-forwarding to a three-year-old whiskey. In well, Israel, what does that extra year do to your whiskey? Well, uh, some of you that tasted the young single malt could mention that this is young. Not say just for a yeah. for the name young single malt. It, it is young. It doesn't drink young. No. No. Yeah, I think there is something missed. Uh, the whiskey will be more complex, more uh, mm-hmm. flavorful, and uh, and more rounded. Okay. I think at the end, more drinkable. Some more I'm depth, using this word a lot. More but, depth. Uh, more depth. More yeah. Depth. Okay. More complex. But it's, more depth. Um, you know, it's it's Israel. Yeah. One month of news for us. It's ten years of news in America. So <laughs> you know, it's a yeah, yeah. No, that that's a good point. We are we are maturing fast. So not with, only the whiskey, us. <laughs> <laughs> but but with that in mind, so when when I think of Scottish distilleries, mm-hmm. if they want to release younger whiskeys, they'll use first fill casks maybe some second fill casks. If they are looking to lay down whiskey that will be released as 18, 20, 25, 30 years old, they're going to use second fill or refill casks. So with that in mind, and given the angel share here, which I think you said is 10%? It's wrong, about yeah. 9, to, 10, 9 to 10%? In average. Are you laying down any refill casks, or does that even make sense given the angel share? We have also refill casks, but uh, most of our of our casks are first fill experiment casks. Yeah, uh, which in term of uh, four to five years maturation, mm-hmm. that's I think the perfect uh, time for those casks to be matured. Yeah, the results are really good 
from this cost. Okay. How, ma- how many, I mean, if you were to uh, give me an idea, a percentage of, of casks in your warehouse that are refill that you're hoping to... Right now, we don't have a lot. We don't have a lot. Uh, still the, the first maturation. We have though, to empty so casks before yeah. we... Yeah, oh, okay, yeah. You have to empty them yeah. first before yes. you can... But we have, have, to we have about yeah. Uh, yeah. 2 to 3% okay. of uh, refill casks. Okay. And you're filling 800 casks a year yes. at this point. At this point. And w- what does growth look like for you right now? What do you see yourself doing in 2020, 21, 22? Wow. This year we actually gonna be, I think we're going to fill. We will like, fill more than, yeah, more than 800. Around 1,000, yeah. I still didn't plan the next year. <laughs> working yeah. on the, the next release. But we are uh, currently distilling something like almost 200,000 uh, LPA. Uh, okay. And um, so we can actually... Uh, grow uh, the fermentation tanks by mm-hmm. by fifty percent. Okay. Right now, what stops us from uh, from uh, producing more is the fermentation tanks. Yeah. The fermentation tanks. Okay. So, which you've got four of them. We have yeah. four right yeah. now. So we, we can, can add up to I think six or seven. Okay. And keep with the same stills and uh, yeah. And yeah, add, on. add another shift, and that's it. You know, we can we can uh, go up to uh, like half a million liters. A year, something wow. like that. Something like that. So that is it just just for the sake of our listeners right now, um, because it's a distillery we talk about somewhat frequently. Kilhoman is doing about two hundred and forty, two hundred and fifty thousand liters per year. That's changing because they've yeah. put in a, a second still house, yes. so that'll be five hundred mm-hmm. to six hundred thousand liters per year. So you, f- you st- so with your current stills, you can get up. So to we that. have bigger stills than yes, the first much stills bigger, of, yeah. uh, of Kilhoman, but yeah. don't forget that we are working only five and a half days yeah. a week. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Or the half day we are not producing; we are just open. It's five the, days, yeah. It's the, five the, days, the half yeah. day is only for the visitor center. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we are producing five days a week. Yeah. So that's eighty percent. Okay. And we're not working 24 hours. Of the capacity yet. that Kilhoman could have yeah. produced with our stills. But uh, I think that one of the things that uh, we are, you know, glad to be here in this um, small country, but we, like we talked about, we have like four different kind of uh, climate zones. Climates, yeah. Uh, now we are here now in Tel Aviv. It's zero, just uh, you know, elevation. Mm-hmm. Just, it's just, just sea next level. to the sea level, yeah. and then if you go up to Jerusalem, it's something like fifty minutes, seven hundred and fifty meters above sea level. Wow! And then one more hour or even less, you're in minus four hundred and thirty meters below sea level at the Dead Sea, yes. which is the lowest place on Earth. Yeah. And we are currently aging something like sixty, sixteen, I think sixteen, eighteen, uh, eighteen uh, barrels. Yeah. 18 casks there, and just experimental. Eight, yeah. You know, it's it's crazy. It's uh, we're gonna be there tomorrow, and yeah. we're, gonna we're gonna taste, taste some and some casks. And I'll, I'll try to bring some uh, casks. Yeah, or, we'll do, uh, or the same cask before <coughs> we brought them to the. So so they're. Oh, I see. So you took samples from the cask before we before moved you them to the, the yeah. Dead sea. And there's and no, you actually have. Twins here, and I have sister casks. Yeah. I have yeah. other sister casks, but I have to same. look for them. Oh, okay, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it might 
not be easy to to get to it yeah but uh, if not i have other sure. samples yeah so we can compare the the maturation so here it's, the it's hot and humid but not that hot yeah. tel aviv it's like 35 36 now 32 80 percent humidity tomorrow the dead sea it can be ספציפיקציה. Is that true? Yeah. That's not true. true. We'll try this. It's true. It's true. Really? I, I have a feeling you're just saying that so I don't wear sunblock and I'm going to leave that place looking like a fucking lobster. <laughs> you got me. Uh, you're so cruel. <laughs> so, okay, so you've got 16 to 18 casks in the, not in the Dead Sea, but where the Dead Sea is sitting on the roof of a hotel. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> One of the first things that Jim, Jim Swan told us that is Israel is a place that he is really happy to work in because it's a great playground with a lot of climate zones. Yeah. So you can put cask in different zones in Israel and let it mature and it will be matured really differently. We'll see tomorrow the Dead Sea. <laughs> is, is the air by the Dead Sea a salty yeah. air? Salty and very dry. So I wonder... It's not only salty, it's very mineral. It's uh, something, a lot of sulfur yeah. uh, inside it. Okay. So, you know, oh. It's uh, natural. I remember talking with um, James McTaggart of, of Aaron Distillery. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I love Aaron whiskeys. What I love about it is it has, it has this lovely briny yep. character to it. And, and I asked... Jim, I said, where's that coming from? And I can't do a Scottish accent. I sound Rastafarian when I try yeah. to do a Scottish accent, so it never worked. I just, I end up being racist towards two cultures, and yeah. it doesn't work. So, um, so I asked him, you know, where's this, this salty, briny character coming from? And he said, he said you know, our, our marketing team would love to tell you that, oh, you know, we're on the shores On Aaron, and the waves are lapping up and and you know the briny air is affecting the cask. He said, "We have sealed warehouses. Yeah. there's no salt water getting in there. Maybe during low tide you're getting a saltiness in the yeah. air, but it's like anywhere else. Where it comes from, I don't know, but I like it. Mm-hmm. I like that there's a brininess. That's what he says. And so it will be very interesting. Given that your casts are actually outside yeah, yeah, and not in a warehouse and in an environment where there's a brininess mm-hmm. a saltiness to see if that actually makes its way in, into the cask and yeah, but we have really good really big problem time will disappear will make our whiskey disappear because because the angel shares the angel share is it's an amazing yeah, huge yeah what is I it don't I, we don't know yet seven hundred percent per day <laughs> yeah <Is> <laughs> I think <laughs> it's doubled then in Tel Aviv. I, I mean, just, just for a minute, you know, I was there like uh, two, three weeks ago, and I think just by looking at the cask from inside, just mm. taking samples, 
it looked like it was over 10% in six months. So I don't know. Wow. But, uh, yeah, I so it's, it's probably, we cannot do a full maturation, but uh, and it is. Is that 10% volume? Is the ABV no, going uh, up? Um, Over we'll there, see you tomorrow. I think yeah, we'll see yeah, tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, you can uh, bring your ABV ometer. Over there, I think yeah. the ABV will raise up. Okay, yeah, but because the, it's we'll dry. And, yeah. Oh, we'll because of the dry, the heat. It usually, usually, if it's dry, so water evaporates. Not only the ABV when it's humid like here, so the ABV goes up, and yeah, so probably when it's dry, the ABV yeah. goes up. Yeah, ABV goes up. Okay, okay, but uh, and it's out in the sun, so yeah. So I've got, I've got sunscreen tomorrow. Suns- yeah. Oh, so I do wear it. Yeah. yeah. So I sh- okay. I no. Or, know, or you umbrella. You're sending me mixed messages. No, or you, know, you can bring so. umbrella too. <laughs> A parasol. <laughs> so I've got two more questions for you. Yep. What are you most proud of? Well, you you have been here for for two days. Yeah. Now with this day and a half. Yeah. Day. Yeah. And uh, you see what we built here uh, over the last five or six years. And I think uh, there is a lot to be proud of. Really nice place, mm-hmm. nice uh, working environment. And most important of all, we have, I think, in my opinion, really, really good juice. Yeah. That's how you call it in the uh, J- Oh, J-U-I-C-E, not J-E-W-S. Okay, no. Not Jews, okay. yeah. Yeah. Well, you got really, nice Jews. Really good Jews, yeah, too. Not Jews. Juice. 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 Yeah, that's what I meant. Uh, you have nice juice here, too. <laughs> but uh, I think we are going somewhere really good. Yeah. And uh, it's hard to be proud during the process. But because when, when you're looking yeah. at it from above, it's it's really a big okay. thing okay. What, we, what we got here. From, from from my point of view, yeah. it's um, there's two things. One, it's the new make. I think I, I love the new make. I love to it's drink fantastic. the new make. It's fantastic, it's and really I think it's. Excellent. I think I, I, I was actually in contact with an importer in Greece, and he told me, you know, it's too much like a grappa. It's so fl- fruity and floral that it doesn't. It's not going to work in in Greece because it's more like tsipol. You know the, the the thing they did drink. So, so I said, "Okay, I'm going to talk to you when we're going to have whiskey." And it was amazing for me to see because yeah. it really is, you know, floral and and very fruity. They thought it's from grapes, and wow. and uh, so the new make. I think we were exhibiting in the uh, last year uh, London Whiskey Show, and guys like Ian Chang from Kavalan and Brian Nation yeah. from 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 Jameson. They just came there and. They just tasted it. And they sent like 30, 40 people. Just, you got to try what the Israeli guys are doing. Yeah. So they went crazy about the new make. So I think when you start with this kind of quality yeah. and then you take uh, the wood management, which Tomer is managing, and our innovative you know, uh, way of thinking with Dead Sea pomegranates and the indigenous grapes, um, uh, whatever. Are you talking we, about some sort of ancient grape varieties? Or? Yeah, it's um, first of all, the Israeli wines are, are different than, than than the rest. You know, same grape varieties in in different kind of right. terroir. But yeah. um, there was a research in in one of the universities in Israel uh, conducted by Dr. Shividori, which they actually mapped the DNA of something like 150 or 200 
different kind of grape varieties that are wow. originally from the land of Israel. It's uh, combined with with the uh, um, uh, University of Milan, which are you know the, the yeah. number one for for uh, recognizing uh, grape varieties, and they actually found a little you know vase with uh, you know grape grains, the, you know the, the mm-hmm. seeds mm-hmm. inside in one of the King David fortress. They actually. They they discover the DNA and now they're trying to grow up again. The what King David was was drinking, wow, which was probably shitty wine. But you know it's a. <laughs> but now there's King a, David had no taste. No taste. People don't talk about this no, quite no, often. No, no, yeah, he had shit taste. Of course, yeah. yeah. So look at his wife. Yeah, but <laughs> but he was Terrible. good with this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, so anyway, <laughs> King David, he was a problem. <laughs> but if you look at uh, what they did now, they have like um, four or f- five grape varieties that are, they uh, grow up, not grow now in in, mm. in Israel. Mm-hmm. And there's a winery called Recanati. They're oh yeah, I know making, Recanati. Uh, so yeah. Recanati, of course, they're making lots of wines, very good wines. And then they have uh, two wines. They're not, they're not making a lot of it. Yeah. I think they're just learning how to play with those. It's okay. the fourth or fifth uh, uh, vintage. Okay. Marawi, which is the white one, and Bituni is the red one. Yeah. And we took their casks. So we now we're trying to play with that. And it's yeah. very interesting because it's different wines that yeah. what you usually grow, very mineral and, and different. And uh, so we have that. We have the the Dead Sea. We have uh, Upper Galilee uh, aging, and we have the pomegranate. So we are trying and trying all yeah. the time the to get sherry. our, you know. Yeah, we have a lot to yeah. tell. Just the, wait. The yeah. fact that you're doing kosher sherry, I think that mm-hmm. again, getting back to what are you most proud of? Yeah. For the now, now granted, a lot of people just love sherried whiskeys. Yeah. But to have a kosher sherried whiskey. That's that. That's a game changer. That yeah. is like, what, what? What is what is milk and honey's thumbprint? I think that could be. So that could, could it develop. It's developing really good, but only time will tell if yeah. it will be. Yeah, good point. Very worth. Uh, I love your hesitation. <laughs> say, uh, yeah. let's, we'll no, see how it goes. Whiskey. Yeah. In whiskey industry, you must have a lot of patience. And uh, so this is a, and I will get to my final question in a minute. But Israelis are known for a lack of patience. Yeah. But you're working in an industry that requires patience. Three years. That's it. <laughs> Fast maturation. Fast maturation. <laughs> but does that, I mean, does that mindset, has that changed your life in any way? The, the fact, I mean, this is, this is your nine to five. Yeah. Monday through... Part of Friday, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it, Sunday, mon- Sunday through Sunday. Thursday. There Sunday we go. Sunday through Thursday. Yeah. Um, you know, does that change you as a person? Uh, do you think? I don't know to answer this question, <laughs> but I don't think so. Okay. I I knew what I'm going into from the beginning. I'm a whiskey geek, so I know a lot of about the the whiskey industry. In Scotland mm-hmm. and all over the world, and we have the patience. We we knew that we will need to have the yeah, patience. Yeah. Although all the people in Israel, or almost all the people in Israel, are uh, really surprised with what we are doing. Yeah. Because of the lack of patience here. I think that if if you take 
our team and the distillery yeah. and put it in northern European country, yeah. we get crazy. <laughs> but here we have to monitor every every yeah. cask yeah. once a week, twice a week, twice uh. a month. So and you've got what <laughs> close close to three thousand casks you're sitting on. Twenty five hundred. No, no, no. Now we are. We have about one fifth, one hundred, one thousand five hundred. Yeah, thousand five hundred. Oh, what did I think? Okay, okay. But about. but we are feeling every day more. We're feeling every day more. Yeah, more exactly. Because when the whiskey will be out, we cannot stop. Okay. So, so we are actually a company in OCD. You know, just uh, <laughs> just have to monitor everything. Have yeah, to do check yeah. around everything and waiting for everything yeah, to, to be yeah. ready. And I call it study. Study, yeah. Let's drink. <laughs> yes, let's let's call drink. it study. Let's what taste everything. No, I'm studying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, officer, I just was studying. Yeah, yes. not, <laughs> I was just studying. Slurp, 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 slurp. Thanks again to both uh, Tomer and Tal uh, for the interview, for their time uh, while I was in Tel Aviv with them. Uh, thanks, of course, to Aiton, who was not on... Uh, this interview, but definitely looked after me while I was out there. Um, yeah. yeah, it seems like a yeah. great trip and great conversation. And I really, I'm really kicking myself that I missed it. But as you and I have discussed, I missed it for good reasons. And there will be a next time. Yeah. Well, before we go on to the news, I just want to say something quick here. Obviously, I was no out. listener believes that this is going to be quick. Uh, quick-ish? Quick-esque? <laughs> <laughs> uh, obviously, I was out there to tour Milk and Honey Distillery. But, you know, I was there for three and a half days, and I did get a little time to go to Jerusalem. Now, I'm a 45-year-old American Jew who had never been to Israel before. And it's really interesting to go to a country. It's really interesting growing up in a town where you're basically the only Jew Mm -hmm. and going to a country where you're just one of millions. (laughs) And, and it's, it's, it's a very interesting, I've never been to a place where I'm one of many, right? You grew <laughs> you grew up in a country where everybody's Scottish. Yep. And and in the US, you're in a country where we are a melting pot. And I think that's mm-hmm. a good thing. I think I think that's a great thing. But as as a Jew who definitely felt as the outsider and continues to feel as the outsider in many many situations, this is the first time where I just felt in place, yeah, and yeah. No, I I get it. I I get it. And as you know, as much as I'm, I'm fortunate in being in America, where Scots people are kind of enjoyed wherever they go in the world, right? <laughs> and so, being the only Scotsman in my town, you know, often being the only Scotsman wherever I go, is a cool thing, right? It's yeah. a, it's a really yeah. enjoyable experience. Yeah, and so. You know, as much as my experience is, is on the enjoyable end of the spectrum and not the isolated end of the spectrum or the the uh, the fringe, you know, made to feel like you're the fringe. Yeah. I yeah. still feel when I go home to Scotland that 
yes, I'm now back among my people, right? Oh, I, I get this. I understand this. Yeah. I know that feeling. Um, and so I, I, I totally hear where you're coming from. Um, for me, at the end of the day, I kind of enjoy getting back to America and being the only Scotsman around. It's kind of a special feeling. <laughs> uh, I completely understand how lucky I am to have that experience in this country. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing that I want to mention here, too, is while I am, I would say I'm fairly religious, probably more spiritual than I am religious. Uh, going to Jerusalem and visiting all these historical sites, whether they're, they're historical for Jews, for Muslims, for Christians, for Armenians, what have you, it's so interesting to go back to a place that is the source of people's, um, you know, what they feel is their own cultural significance. And going down the winding roads and finally getting to the Western Wall and spending time there, it was, it was kind of special. I, I don't it sounds that I, I can hear it in your voice that it was kind of special and you're having a hard time articulating just how special it felt. Right, because I, I can't put a fine point on it. I can't necessarily use words, you know, wrap the experience in the words. Um, I, I did record a, a bit of audio while I was there and uh, you, listeners can, can hear it now. Um, as I'm talking, but there's this, you know, this section of the Western Wall that is, like most of it is open, but there's a covered part that is actually air conditioned and they've turned that covered part into its own small sort of synagogue. And, hmm. and you know, you hear the, the, the people, we call it davening. It's, you know, it's a, it's a word basically for, for praying. And... It was in that spot the most where I just, it felt like a coming home. Hmm. And and like you had said, I'm having a very difficult time putting uh, my experience into words. It was just, all I can say was it was... It's it's so special it, it shouldn't have words. But here I am as someone trying to explain things and I can't properly do it. But if only you could write a bass rift that would allow you to communicate just how you're feeling on the inside, but I guess that's the limitations of bass. Well, no, you definitely can. And the bass riff goes and then there's another one that goes Do you want to tell yeah. your, your bass joke that you told me the other week for the did, listeners? Did I have a bass joke? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, this is, this. <laughs> so there's a boy uh, who, who wants to take bass lessons. And, and his father, who's a, a musician himself when he was younger, um, said, yeah, not, not a problem, not a problem. Here's, here's my bass that I played growing up. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll hook you up with my friend who plays... Um, who teaches bass. So, oh, that's fantastic. So the first week of lessons 
comes and goes. The boy comes home from his lesson, and he said, uh, you know, the father says, so, you know, how'd it go? And the son was like, you know, it went really well. He said, well, what did you learn? He said, I learned the first five frets on the first string, on the heavy string. It's like, oh, that's fantastic. Uh, you know, keep it up, keep it up. It's like, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> and so the, the, the next week of lessons comes and goes, and the boy comes back from the class, and the, son's, or the father says, you know, so how, how did the second lesson go? And he said, I tell you, it's going great. I now know the first <laughs> five frets on the second string, the second heaviest string. It's like, oh, wait, you, you're on your way. That's great. And the third week comes around, and the boy comes back, and he says, uh, the father says, so how'd it go? How'd, how'd the lessons go? He said, oh, I didn't have any lessons. It's like, what are you talking about? He said, I'm in a band now. <laughs> 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 the thing that you said to me the other week when you told me that joke was, as somebody who plays bass, I totally get this joke, and it's and it's you know unfortunately accurate, and uh, that was kind of your caveat before leading into the joke. So you you tell that joke as somebody who does play bass and played bass in a successful band, so. <laughs> That's it's hilarious. I love that joke. So. Um, cool. Given today's podcast theme, yes, I think it will help to inform the theme of our new section. <laughs> that flawless. Yes, this week it's really going to be quick. <laughs> that is what he said. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag dad reality. <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> Can we talk about it without waking the paper boy? Oh, no. 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 We're, we're going to be quick, but yeah. we still need to wake him up. Okay. Oi, paper boy. Waken Z up. That's German. As my wife tells me, that's I speak fluent German. Waken Z up. <laughs> I, you know, I also speak fluent German. I knew exactly what you were saying. So here we are. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the, there's there's a major reason why I was in Tel Aviv with milk and honey, mm-hmm. and it has to do with the fact. That you and I, Jason, have selected a cask of wild turkey whiskey. <laughs> you and I, Jason, have selected. <laughs> what the fuck just happened? <laughs> what kind of brain fart was that? <laughs> I went to Israel. Oh, yeah, what were you doing there? Selecting a wild turkey cask. <laughs> Checks out. <laughs> What did you do in Kentucky? Oh, I went to Westland. Fantastic distillery. <laughs> I can't help it if English is my first language. <laughs> We're past language now. We're into geography. <laughs> uh, uh, wow. And I'll tell you, that, that wasn't even a Freudian slip. We, <laughs> we, we've done a wild turkey. Um, what I meant to say is that you and uh-huh. I, sir have selected mm-hmm. a milk and honey 
cask. Oh, so we selected a milk and honey cask from milk and honey is what you're saying? From milk and honey out of Tel Aviv. Have you heard of them? <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad we have the news segment for this. <laughs> well, so here's the thing. You and I months ago had asked our One Nation Under Whiskey listeners. We had asked our single cast nation members who may not listen to One Nation Under Whiskey, even though I think all of them do. All of them yeah, should. I'm not following. Yeah. <laughs> if they would be interested in us releasing younger whiskeys. And the answer that we heard from many of them was a resounding yes. And they've actually yeah, been, they've been pinging us, you know, when's this younger whiskey coming? When, when are we going to get more Westland? When are we going to get more Catoctin Creek? When are we going to get more Amra? When are we going to get something? We want young whiskey. And yep. so we heard you loud and clear. And we're working with Milk and Honey to do perhaps two casks of whiskey, one for sure. And I don't want to give too many details out. Do you want to give a wee bit of detail? Or do you want to... No, I think there'll be time for that. I think we came into this for a very quick news segment. And I think today we will be men of our word. So this is what the, the only thing that I will add is just as with the Glen Murray that we that we've done, just as with say our second Aaron and our Kilhoman from years back, what we try to do with distilleries, if we're working directly with them, is lead with, hey nation members, here is a distillery's DNA. This is what they're known for. Here's a really good example of a house cask style, if you will. And, and then we've gotten into situations where we said, you know what? Here's other great whiskey from that distillery that isn't in the house style. So, for instance, with yeah, Glen sure. Murray, we did a, a 12-year-old in bourbon. Boom, house style Glen Murray, just Glen Murray on steroids. But then, hey, here it is, six years in bourbon, six years in Madeira. Or here it is, seven years in Fino Sherry. And in the case exactly. of of these two milk and honey casks, we have one that is, I would say, more house style and one that is a bit outside of house style. We also want to follow up on last episode when we talked about our fifth Single Cast Nation retail release Ah, coming to the United States. Mm -hmm. Now, here we are in this episode saying it is in California. Distribution will be happening shortly. You are more than welcome, as we said back in that episode, to go to the website, have a look at the states where we've got distribution. We give you the names of the distributors in those states. Either let them know you're looking, let your favorite liquor store know you're looking, and give your liquor store the name of the distributor that they can also reach out to and get Single Cast Nation retail on a shelf close to you. Yeah, and for those of you that may not have listened to the previous episode, which... Nope, that doesn't check out. Nope. It doesn't check out, nope, right? No, I think... Nope, I think everybody listening to this episode also listened to the last episode. I have no doubt about that. So so you're saying... We have the best listeners. They're, and they're all named Tim. A lot of people are saying it. <laughs> <laughs> so for all the Tims uh, who listened to this episode um, and... and is there like a female version of Tim? 
Like uh, Timina? Timpani. Timon? Timpani. Yeah, for timpani. Uh, you know, just you've got it clear in your head what the list of casks were. But for any of you Donalds Very clear. Who, who hadn't listened to the previous episode, uh, you can go to our website. Donaldinas? Is that? Donna. Donna. Oh, the, all right. You, you make it sound so simple. <laughs> you can go to our our website and just there's like a uh, in the navigation there's a blog section just click on blogs and and you'll see the details of release number five eight different casks of whiskey in case you're curious what we're releasing I think that's it for the news are we missing anything I feel like when we had our production meeting wink uh, there was one more thing and I can't think what it is now. Uh, just to be clear, I said news, not nudes. I can't even keep up. Hashtag dad jokes. <laughs> I always check out the daily nudes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well let's 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 leave it there. If you can't remember what that news bit was, then it was obviously was not important. You say that. <laughs> <laughs> Because this week uh, we are not going to be highlighting any emails, yeah. what I do what I do have are some misconceptions from our friends at Milk and Honey. That uh, brilliant, yeah. I thought they were. I thought that they were fun. I can so. only imagine what a young Israeli distillery has to say about misconceptions. <laughs> can Can I tell you something? So th- this was really cool. So. And we'll get to the misconceptions in a second, but my first night, my f- first full day at the distillery that evening, uh, after the tour of the distillery, after the interview that 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 I did, and before the tasting that I did at the distillery, I did a single cast nation tasting with Gal Granoff and in his his whiskey society at the distillery. Mm-hmm. Before Gal Granov, who people may very well know from Whiskey Israel, the blog. Yeah, exactly. Yep, very, very good. Thank you for uh, clarifying. Well clarified. That's why I'm here. <laughs> I was having a falafel sandwich uh, on the distillery floor with some of the other people, and there was this younger guy who's in production. And by younger, I want to say he's in his early 20s. And somehow we got talking about music. And here we have this Israeli in his 20s who's a massive fan of 70s glam rock. Ah, that is your area. That is my area. I I don't find anyone uh, under under 40 who even recognizes what 70s glam rock even is. Uh, So I had a really cool conversation with him. Oh, his name is escaping me, and, and I feel terrible for that. But he was so much fun to talk to. It was great to, to geek out on music while I was there. It was a nice little departure from geeking out on whiskey. <laughs> you, you understand that you were growing up in the 70s. You didn't experience 70s glam rock as it was happening. You oh, also with- experienced it retroactively like this young fella that you're describing. 
100%. However, it was never too far away. I may have been born in the 70s, but I grew up in the late 70s and 80s, and of course, 90s. But in the late 70s and 80s, the glam hits from the 70s were still playing on the radio in rotation. (laughs) And on top of that, my uncle ran a record store. And so I got to discover all these great 70s glam bands through him and a lot of, you know, lesser known glam bands through him. So while I wasn't spending my formative years going to 70s glam rock concerts, uh, it was definitely (laughs) something that informed my musical upbringing. Yeah, I just wanted to make it clear to the listeners that you were not born in the 1950s. (laughs) <laughs> it may sound like I was born in the 1950s, but I was I will add, not. I will add this, though, when you talk about music yeah. from the not-too-distant past, you know, still being mm-hmm. present, still being relevant in your life, it, it makes me shed a, a tear when the classic rock station plays Nirvana. And I'm, <sighs> I'm kind of like... No, sir. I, I think you're mistaken. Classic rock is Deep Purple and Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin. It is not Nirvana, Guns N' Roses and Pearl Jam. Oh, <laughs> that, sir, gosh, is what we that... call contemporary rock. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Like, like <sighs> Nirvana, Nirvana's Nevermind album. Yep, yep. That came out in 1990, I want to say. Even 91, but, you know, we're, we're so Even far not, in the not, past, does it really matter? <laughs> like, 1991, so, doesn't matter. Right? That's 28, 29 years ago. <laughs> So let's 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 even let's let's drill down a little further. Let's say it came out in 1990, okay? Okay. That is only... 17 years after Led Zeppelin 4 came out. Right? So when, yeah. when you and I were yeah. 17, yep. Led Zeppelin 4 was only 17 years old. Yep. Yep. Like yep. let's let that <laughs> fuck our minds for a second. What about Led Zeppelin disbanded in 1980 with the death or released their last album in 1980 after the death of John Bonham? Ten years later, one decade later, we got never mind. (laughs) Mind. And for everybody who's who is listening to this while they're driving and and drove off in into the woods. Yes. um, Because they couldn't control their minds exploding. I do apologize. Um, We will not pay for any of the damages of your vehicles. Yeah, uh, clean the brain goop <laughs> off the inside of your windscreen. Hey Siri, when was Nirvana's Nevermind album released? I found this on the web. Oh, fuck, fuck's sake. She's like, I found this on the web and now I have to go in. Yep. Uh, it, it was September 24, 1990. There you go. Jesus. Okay, that's good. We don't have to go back and edit anything. We don't even need to make a comment. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. 1990 fucking blows my mind. I bought it the summer I turned 17. I used to run a record store, 
and I would be in charge of, so we had this one section that had the top 40 albums of any given week. And so I would have to shuffle around albums if they went up in the charts, if they went down in the charts, if I had to add some, if I had to remove some. And I remember when that came out, it was so it wasn't in the top 100, and then it made the top 100, and then it got into the 40s, and then it finally got to the number one album. Yeah. And, and that was sometime in 1990, and I remember watching... You know, I remember slowly moving that up the charts as the weeks went on. And it stayed at number one for, for some time. And and it was it was this revelation album. Like all of a sudden, music had changed from 80s metal hair bands to yeah. music that was more down to earth, more real, more grassroots. Uh, definitely raw, more raw, punkier, etc. Like a dirty sound. Yeah, and it just seemed like, okay, the frills are gone. We're back to real music again. Yeah, yep. Yeah, it was. It was a special. It was a special time growing <laughs> up. <laughs> final, final comment. Sitting here in 2019, I'm having a hard time given what my boys listen to on the radio. Guess. I'm really, my mind has been blown. <laughs> I'm having a hard time sitting here in 2019, yeah. listening to what my boys request on, you know, the radio, the radio apps and on Alexa. Mm. I knew that would get her to respond. Shh, Alexa, go back to sleep. And thinking that Nirvana's Nevermind was America's number one album. Yeah. Like... That's not music as we understand it in 2019. No, no. Like that would be a specialist, sub-genre, distant access album. Yes. yes. It would not be America's number one album. But in 1990, that was the reality. Yeah. I mean, to, to sound further like an old man. Yeah. It's, that album has guitars, bass, drums, like there's real instruments and I'm not trying to say that, you know, today's modern music isn't as good because it's it's formulated differently. I don't want to be that old man. Although it is obviously not as good. Oh, it's not as good as fucking terrible garbage <laughs> shit. But, <laughs> you know, it's, it's you're 100% right. Like, you put real instruments into the mix? No, that's not going to make it into the mm-hmm. top, not to the top 10, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, having said that, not too many years ago, I would say four or five years ago, Weird Al Yankovic's album made number one. So there is still <laughs> hope for humanity. <laughs> um, uh, just think, uh, last yeah. episode we talked about Elijah Amamamnon, uh, who wanted us to skew younger. And yeah. now this very next episode... Uh, here we are now skewing to the demographic of mid-40-year-olds <laughs> who remember Nirvana's Nevermind being the number one album in America oh, gosh. Uh, in 1990, before Elijah was even born. So I think our work here is done, Joshua. Should we throw this over for misconception and get out of here? 
yeah. Should we just go to misconception and go fully out of here, or that's that's that, is that it? Is that yeah, it? Is that what you want to do? Yeah, let's say our goodbyes. Throw it over to our friends in Tel Aviv and call it all good. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Tal. Thank you, Tomer. Thank you, Aiton. Thank you, Gal and mm-hmm. Gal. <laughs> Gal Granoff and uh, Gal, who is the owner of Milk and Honey Distillery. And thank you, Jason. And thank you, listeners. Until next time. Cheers. No, I'm just thinking about the what we call fast maturation. It's not really that we are doing something else than somewhere somewhere over the world. But uh, we just use our climate to produce really good whiskey. Mm-hmm. And we're not doing any manipulate oh, okay. of, on the inside the maturation process. So like some, uh, some American producers, young American producers might put wood chips in there or wood spirals. I've heard about yeah. everything. I've tasted yeah. a lot. But uh, we are thinking really old-fashioned. Okay. We just put the spirit the single malt spirit inside the cask and wait. Okay. Our wait is it takes uh, shorter than the yeah. other countries. Because uh, you're never going to know what happens tomorrow in the Middle East. You need to make your whiskey fast. That's why you fast. have all of the passports. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Seven different passports. <laughs> but we do not. We don't do anything. So you've heard people say, "What are you doing to make?" No, your... I didn't hear anyone saying. But okay. uh, I think. Someone might be thinking that okay. we are doing something. You remember what we told the guys in London? Because, because this is amazing. What yeah. you taste after half a year, after a year, yeah, is amazing compared to other places in the world. But we do not add any color. We so natural. We don't do anything yeah. but wait for it to be mature. Okay, good. I think we told the guys in London. They didn't believe us that it was so young. So I, we told them that we are 12-year-olds, both of us, and we just mature <laughs> fast, something like that. But I think that misconception for me, it's uh, usually in the end of the whiskey shows around Europe yeah. where people are tipsy uh-huh. and they're looking for something sweet. So they're coming to, uh, you guys, do, you have the guy, the thing with the honey, so I need something sweet. So they think we're putting some honey and milk inside <laughs> the whiskey. <laughs> so we're not. Yeah. It's just yeah. the land of milk and honey yeah. from the Bible. This is why we call ourselves okay. M&H. We don't yeah. put any. We're not Rambui. We're not put any, <laughs> any so, and honey no inside. Milk. There's no, no milk, no milk no and no honey. So no. if you're lactose we're vegan. intolerant. Vegan. No, we're vegan. We're vegan. Yeah, vegan. We're vegan. Okay. Exactly. That uh, it's it's always funny that yeah we need something sweet. They tell you we, we, they, someone told us that you're making uh, whiskey with honey, so we needed something sweet for the, wow. <laughs> the end of the evening. Wow. No, 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 yeah, sir, <laughs> it's no not milk, us. No honey. No yeah. milk and no honey. <laughs> wow, there's a woman that goes to my shul, and she was this was during Pesach. She was looking for a, a Passover. Good, Sorry, Efe. Jewish Jewish Passover. Mm-hmm. Yes, Jewish yeah. Passover. <laughs> she was she was looking for a wine for Pesach, mm-hmm. and she goes into a liquor store and she says, "I'm looking for kosher wine. What, what would you have available?" And so the the store owner maybe I'll keep this in here because yeah. this is a very good story. It's a very good slash racist story. Yeah. <laughs> um, he takes her over to the kosher section, which is small, and there's 
Yardin and Roccanti and what have you. And he says, this is our kosher section. He says, but, and he points to the Manischewitz. He says, those people really like the sweet stuff. Why don't you get that? Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, she's a Jewish person just looking for yeah. kosher for Passover those wine. People, she yeah. gets a comment of, those people like that. Yep. <laughs> the Manischewitz. <laughs> yeah. So cook this with that. Uh, shelf that you're talking about, the kosher shelf, I don't yeah. want to be there. We want to be in New World Whiskies, Craft Whiskies, and not there. I'm so glad that you said that. So when it comes to, again, and I think we started off the conversation like this, where you are leading with whiskey first. You don't want to be in that small kosher section. You want to be where the whiskey is. Yes. Kosher aside, you're a whiskey producer. We are good quality single malt whiskey. Good. That's those, what we those, are producing. Those good, amazing Israeli wines that are stuck in the kosher section in the stores next to the Manischewitz, which yeah. is not even the same drink, not even the same yeah. category, but they're not, no one looks at them as Mediterranean wines yeah. or Middle Eastern wines or New World wines just as kosher wines. And if you're a New Yorker or, or an American that doesn't look for kosher wine, you don't even look at that. Yeah. You just you can buy a Greek wine, which is very good. Mm-hmm. We don't have we, we have very good wines. So yeah. but this is why we don't want to be in this it's like a kind of um, a golden cage that yeah. co- they're gonna buy from you, but you're not gonna get out of it. Yeah. I- exactly. And there's there's <clears throat> a we talk about that as being pigeonholed. Yeah. Pigeonholed in, into, they're not classifying you as a whiskey. Well, what you want to avoid is being classified as a kosher product rather than a whiskey. Yeah, yeah, um, you're right. Exactly. We are whiskey, good whiskey, New World whiskey, yeah. a craft distillery. Yeah, this is what we are, and we are kosher. And uh, it sounded like you were saying bad things about Manischewitz. The Fifty-seven, the gefilte fish, or uh, the gefilte fish in yeah. uh, the cans, or no, no, no not that. <laughs> I don't want to say that, but I don't know what it is. Manischewitz. Yes. No. You don't know Manischewitz. No, I have no you clue. Can, you can't oh. find them in Israel. It's a, oh, you no, can't. No, I have no clue what it is. It's, it's a we very, don't need it. <laughs> it's a very sweet, common wine for, for Kiddush wines. It's yeah. like a Kiddush Sounds wine. Sounds like it's great a, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's delicious. Let's do a Manischewitz finish. Oh, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. There you go. Innovation. It's oh, great. It's great. <laughs> Manischewitz finish. Did, did I leave out any anything that you wanted to talk about? How are you today, Joshua? How am I today? Yeah. How was the shakshuka? Have that was the what? Enough, or the shakshuka. Oh, shashuka. I heard, shakshuka. I heard, I heard, <laughs> how was the sexual chocolate? That's what I heard. <laughs> it was before I picked you up. <laughs> uh, I, I'm only a day and a half here, but okay. I'm loving Tel Aviv. Yeah. I think it's, it's, <laughs> it's a very interesting city. I think you, you talked about it before. You've got this combination of old, shitty-looking buildings yeah. and new, beautiful buildings. And very beautiful old buildings and shitty <laughs> new buildings, yeah. um, but but it's it seems to be a melting pot yeah. of people, mm-hmm. uh, Jews, Arabs, black, white, yeah, just everybody, exactly, and very liberal, very, very liberal. liberal, very free, and this How is something that. How many people did you have at your Pride March? 
to 150,000 people. Compared to the rest of the Middle East? <laughs> None. None. <laughs> yeah. 100% more than the yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%, 100%, 100% more. Than yeah. It's it's really it's they, an amazing They even had a pride parade in Jerusalem. Which in is, Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem is like a, you know, it's a it's a dynamite barrel because mm-hmm. of the religious but they had for the fifth time or 10th time in a row wow. uh pride parade wow. just a few weeks ago and uh, yeah it's it's of course it's much smaller than Tel Aviv but Yeah. But it's still it's very, very interesting. And I think that uh, this is what you want to see when you look to, and talk about Tel Aviv and Israel and not uh, what you see on CNN, probably. No, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a, a, a good point. It is, it is a, uh, it's, it's a home to a lot of progressive mm-hmm. thinking people. Uh, we talked about it before. It, it's like it's the vegan capital of the world. Yeah. So you've got... And the food is amazing. So a very foodie city, a yep. very open city, a welcoming city. Um, Just receives every, everyone, anyone, no. and... Uh, yeah. I love it. Anything. Yeah. And I think that this is, this is who we are. So this is our distillery. And the way we think, the way we do stuff, it's, it's the Tel Aviv and the Israeli style. And we're thinking fast, we're doing stuff, yeah. we're experimenting a lot, we're very open and very liberal. And uh, I think this is the way we should be out in the world and mm-hmm. as a pre- representative of Tel Aviv's. And we wish for peace like everyone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. You as the, yeah, as the Miss, Miss America. Wish for peace. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you Wish should you see t- Tomara's wearing this bikini right now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's don't very tell sexy. Them. Don't tell yeah. them. <laughs> With a thong. With a thong, yeah. It's very hot today. <laughs> <laughs> That's not comfortable. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you both Thank you. so much. Thank really appreciate you. it. walking down uh, the beach in Tel Aviv and this is my last night here I decided to take off my shoes, take off my socks and just walk in the water the water um, as you can hear it got some small little waves coming up uh, but they're small, not surf worthy um, but the water is so nice and warm and clear as a bell and blue as could be um, just absolutely gorgeous gorgeous traveling around Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and the Dead Sea has been an amazing experience um, I'm 45 years old this is my first time in Israel and I'm sad that I had to, to do it alone. It would have been wonderful to have my wife and my kids here with me. Um, but they will definitely come out with me uh, before too long. But here I am, my last night in Israel. And uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't want to leave. Um, I'm just stunned by its beauty. I'm stunned by the people. So caring, so outgoing, um, so wanting to do right by everybody. Um, sweet, endearing. Um, you know, the classic uh, Israeli impatience is, is surely here. That's just the people. But it's an impatience that I found is quite often connected to justice. You know, best explanation of this is we're walking back from uh, lunch. Uh, we were in the Shuk uh, Market in Jerusalem, headed back to our car, and the guy who was driving us around, his name was uh, Daron, and we're headed back, and there was a woman trying to hail a taxi cab. I guess you could just call it a taxi or a cab, but I decided to call it a taxi cab. And she actually hailed down two different taxis, trying to figure out what the best price is going to be. Obviously a tourist, at least that's what I was told, but she held up traffic everywhere. And our driver goes up and he's, he jumps in. He's like, no, this isn't good. You're stopping traffic. Don't do this. You're making everybody wait. You know, just grab a taxi, get in, and go to where you need to go. And uh, so there's that impatience, right? He sees that other people are going to be waiting, and he wanted to do right by them. And I just thought that was kind of a cool a little thing to observe. Anyway, this is my last night in Israel, my last night in Tel Aviv, which, again, is a beautiful city. Uh, it's very progressive. It's the, Tel Aviv is the vegan capital of the world, but for meat eaters, there is plenty of meat to eat. And very progressive in terms of um, sexuality. Um, their Pride Festival or their Pride March brought in 250,000 people, uh, which is absolutely amazing. And if you think about the Middle East in general... The only other city that might do something like that is uh, Beirut in Lebanon. It's just a, a forward-thinking idea that isn't very prevalent in most Middle Eastern countries. So yeah, so you've got this sort of beautiful oasis of, you know, not just, not just people, uh, but their culture and their forward-thinking ideas, which which I just find to be wonderful. Anyway, like I said, this is my last night in Tel Aviv, so I am going to stop recording, and I am going to enjoy a little bit of me time. Uh, but I want to thank everybody for, for listening in, and I uh, really hope you enjoyed this episode with uh, our friends from Milk and Honey. I thought that uh, Tomer and... And Tal were just really fun to talk to, and, and hopefully you enjoyed that as well. Anyway, that's it. Cheers, everybody. Thanks so much for listening.